This episode is sponsored by AutoGrid, the number one platform to manage all your distributed energy resources. Learn more at auto-grid.com. That's A-U-T-O-G-R-I-D.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, bidding you hello from Northern New Jersey. Joel McCower is taking a much deserved vacation to celebrate his birthday. On this week's edition, Kroger and Loop are teaming up to bring refillable containers to stores in Portland, Oregon. Forum for the Future CEO Sally Uren talks systems change. More highlights from the main stage of GreenBiz 22. And why Israeli startup UBQ Materials sees a materials revolution in household waste. It's February 25th, 2022. Welcome to another edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me today as co-host is senior editor Deanna Anderson, patching in from El Cerrito, California. Hey, Deanna. Hello, Heather. Excited to be co-hosting with you today. Excited to have you here. You did a terrific job on the sidebar at GreenBiz 22. Kudos to you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. That was so much fun. And with my co-host, John Davies, it was great to just talk to all the folks who are leading and doing a lot of great work in the sustainability field over on the side <laughs> little stage uh, at GreenBiz 22. <laughs> Yeah, so anchoring the live stream. So thank you for that service. Appreciate it. We both uh, just got back from Arizona, but we are both going on vacation in March. So I'm curious, Deanna, tell me where you're going. I am going to be in New York, so pretty close to your neck of the woods, which I'm really excited about. I lived in New York for a couple of years um, and have missed it since living there um, back in 2016. Um, so I'm hoping to see a Broadway show and I know that you are a Broadway fan. So if you have any recommendations, I definitely (laughs) welcome them. Um, and Ah. yeah, just catching up with a lot of friends I still have there. Well, I have seen like four shows in the last several months, which is pretty amazing, including the Tina Turner, um, show and Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge is just a spectacle. It is amazing. Um, and I'm going to see actually maybe the week. It's a week after you're, you're on vacation. Uh, I'm going to see the Michael Jackson show. So that's opening oh, up. Wow. You might want to check, check that one out. I'm sure it'll be hard to get tickets, but why not try? Yes. Uh, and I am uh, planning to get back diving. I haven't been diving in two and a half years. Um, going to Roatan, Honduras um, wow. in March for that. And uh, kind of apprehensive, but also looking very much forward to uh, spending some time underwater so i'm that is you enjoy your vacation yeah 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 so you know what else has got me excited what is that (laughs) this week's week in review all right so diana let's start with your piece one of your pieces from this week uh kroger and loop bringing the first U.S. in-store reuse pilot to Portland, Oregon. 
Oregon, Oregon, I don't know how you say it. Um, but uh, for those of you who need like a, a, a little primer or a refresher, uh, Loop is the circular reuse platform developed by TerraCycle. Um, I, I actually have talked about it a bunch of times because I was uh, using it in the e-commerce version of it. But now uh, with their partner Kroger, uh, they're bringing it to stores. So tell me a little and tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Yeah, so um, Kroger and Loop, they'll be bringing, well, they've already brought shoppers in Portland can already go in store to 25 different Fred Meyer grocery stores. Um, they can pick up about 20 different items from Stubbs barbecue sauce, Nature's Path granola, Pantene shampoo and conditioner in reusable packaging. So when customers get the product after they use it, they have two options. One of those is to keep the packaging if they're so inclined to do that. But the main, to me, <laughs> solution in this is being able to reuse the packaging. So once they are done, they can take it to the bins that are located outside of these stores. And the Loop folks uh, go through the different bins weekly and put it back into their system after they are cleaned and refilled. So I think it's interesting because we at GreenBits have been covering Loop and TerraCycle for a long time. So it's just been super cool to see the evolution of this program that they have. Um, and um, I feel like I really appreciated talking to Lisa Zwack, who is the head of sustainability at Kroger, about just how they got this process um, up and running in their stores. Yeah, it was interesting to me about this is, as I mentioned, I was using it in the e-commerce version. It looks like the products are different. Like, um, I don't remember the barbecue sauce. These, these seem more mainstream. I know they had Clorox wipes because I, I definitely made use of those. But um, just I'm curious, did you talk to her a little bit about the products that they decided to carry? Like, did they did they have any particular science behind that? Or, or was it was it just the brands that were that were available? Yeah, so my understanding is that they really wanted to get at least a few products in there from brands that are recognizable to people um, who are shopping in these stores. And I know that uh, both Lupin Kroger are also hoping to bring in more brands um, as this continues. It's a six-month pilot, um, and I think they're hoping to learn like just what the appetite is for this type of program in Portland and get to know what the feedback is about this in the U.S. since this, this is their first time doing it in store. Yeah, it's funny. Also, the other thing that I'm remembering is how long it takes, like how long sometimes you have these containers in use, like that that Clorox wipes thing, like could take more than six months to use, or as well as unless you're having barbecues like ribs every week, you know, maybe the barbecue sauce. So I hope, I hopefully they'll get the good information they need, but very cool. I'm glad um, to see this progressing. Any other final thoughts? I mean, I'm just hoping um, to see what comes of this in six months. I'm like hoping, I think I kind of want to do like a follow-up story on this to see what they learned and see what next steps are. Like, are they going to go to other cities and States? Um, so I think those are my final thoughts. Yeah, great. Hey, listeners, if you live in Portland, Oregon, give it a try. Right? Yes, and email and me back and let me us. know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that definitely. If you if you have some experience, uh, email Diana. Tell her how it's going. That'd be great. Cool. So, story number two is from our colleague Jesse Klein. Lab meat has three big problems. Is it time for a pivot? 
yeah, <laughs> very extensive feature. Um, uh, so lab meat, what is what are we talking about here? Cultivated meat, the, the idea that you can cultivate these cells and um, make meat in a lab, grow it in a lab essentially has been kind of uh, intriguing and fascinating. A lot of uh, sustainability and food experts for a while. Very, there's a lot of skepticism around this, um, a lot of also a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of venture capital money. I think the money that has been put into it so far is like 1.2 billion here. I'm looking at the number that, that Jesse is citing uh, in 2021. Yeah, I think that was 1.2 billion in 2020. And then in 2021 is going to be even more potentially. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just at the end of last year, uh, Future Meat raised $347 million from Tyson and Archer Daniels Midland. Um, there's a Singapore-based company, Just Eats, that actually has a cultivated chicken product on the market. And they raised $267 million last year. I mean, this is this sort of science takes a lot of money. And I think that's part of the reason these amounts are so big. It's, it's, it's a hard problem. Um, one other thing I'll mention that I think think is particularly intriguing is is this uh, engineering production and innovation center that has been set up in the East Bay in Berkeley near you, right? Um, by Upside, which is another cultivated meat producer. But I love how Jesse kind of breaks this down. I mean, she, she did a lot of talked to a lot of people and really just cuts through the hype a little bit to say, okay, yes, there's a lot of money, but here's some issues that people should know about. And I think I don't know. You could pick one of these. Actually, I would love to hear what you think is what you perceive as the biggest challenge for the for the space. Yeah, I mean, I think going through her story, the biological limitations, which was the third challenge that she presented, um, is something that really stood out to me that maybe maybe side with the skeptics on this one. Um, there was a line in her story that read. All the patients, resources, and brains in the world can't create a technological breakthrough that isn't possible. Um, I thought that was a really poignant line and a pull quote um, from that piece. And I think that while reading this story, I kept wondering how worth it is it to be investing all this money in this? And do we really need this meat? <laughs> um, and I think that the biological challenge was one that just made me feel like I'm not sure if it's worth it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that is it. That is the question, right? I think that is the the big, uh, the naysayers would say, why are we doing this? Why aren't we, you know, why don't these resources go into plant-based approaches? And I think um, one of the, you know, very real things is that you, you're not going to convince the world to give up meat eating in, in its entirety. Very true. Um, and so the idea is that maybe these companies could pick up some of the, uh, I don't know, I don't know, slack is not the right word, but, but some of the demand in a much more sustainable way um, through this sort of ferment fermentation process that, that doesn't uh, produce as much as, as traditional animal husbandry methods. I thought there was an interesting sort of thread that, that Jesse explored in here about having this cultivated meat be part of a part of the ingredients for other things. So like not trying to have it be a complete replacement, but a, a, an ingredient in a, a different product um, for those who don't want, you know, to give up meat in, entirely. But, um, you know, could it be added to to certain alternative proteins to make the, the flavor more palatable to to those who um, who would prefer 
for that taste. So it's definitely a, a topic that I think every one of us should be thinking about more. Um, and I think she does a really good job. It's a very comprehensive piece. I'm not going to get into all the science. We don't have enough time. But um, yeah, I, I definitely would encourage uh, folks to read it and also to comment on it. So great. And that brings us to the third piece that we want to highlight this week. It's a, a column. It's part of our higher learning series, higher H-I-R-E. And uh, it's being written by folks in the community, um, typically younger ones uh, that are just starting their careers. And I love this piece. It's by Shannon Parker, Vice President of Operations and Sustainability for, I guess it's CERC. Um, and the, the headline is the sustainability talent you're looking for. It's in your operations department. And I just, I really appreciate this piece because it really underscores why we need experts in every single team of a company, why we need folks to be thinking about sustainability imperatives on the procurement team, in the manufacturing lines, like just, just making this corridor thinking, making it, making that discipline or that philosophy just part of a decision-making process. Um, you know, I really appreciate the piece for that, for that reason. What about you, Deanna? What did you take away from this? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, as someone who covers the circular economy, and I'm always thinking about like how companies can make their products more sustainable, um, I think that a lot of that really does stem from the operations teams and just, and also, I mean, other teams as well. Something that I often hear from folks who I speak with is that a lot of their emissions come from the production of their products. So I think that working with the operations team to figure out how to do better could definitely help teams, companies drive down their emissions. So yeah, I really appreciated this piece and I hope that folks <laughs> really read it and take away from it and look to their operations teams for some help. <laughs> what gives me uh, optimism and hope also is that this this is being now kind of pervading the uh, university level. Mm -hmm. So the, the individuals that are taking on these roles and that are going to be coming and growing into the leadership roles over the next decade have this sensibility. And so that's that's a really positive sign for me as well. Definitely. It makes me think about like our emerging leaders and 30 under 30 folks as well who are really trying to lead and change the way things are done inside their companies. It takes time, but we really appreciate all those efforts. It was so inspiring to meet so many listeners last week at Green Biz 22. I really appreciate everyone who said something about the podcast. For those who weren't there in Scottsdale, Arizona, I hope you're enjoying the archived live stream of the main stage conversations. One thread that ran through several of those sessions was the need for better data and the rise of new forms of carbon accounting. We've got three audio highlights to share. First up is Manure Carr. She's the Executive Vice President and Chief Accounting Officer at Wells Fargo. And she addressed the intersection of ESG and traditional accounting practices. Here's Manure Carr. Uh, accounting is the language of business. Uh, it has uh, a lot of strict rules. It has very little uh, diversity in practice. 
Uh, it's got a lot of good disclosure and requirements under Sarbanes-Oxley to have really good controls. And uh, all of this makes it easier for investors who invest in companies to really compare companies, look at financial results, and be able to invest. So I'm going to take that and now bring it into ESG world. In ESG world, as we're thinking about creative solutions, um, you know, sustainability bonds, we just heard about those. Those can have some creative features. Um, and anytime you bring in creative features, the world of accounting will say, well, we are going to find a way to measure this and make sure that we are comparing apples to apples what the different companies are doing. We have to engage our auditors to look at anything we do on the sustainable finance front to make sure that we are indeed using the money for the purpose it's intended, as an example. And I'll take this a step further. To me, the intersection of ESG and accounting is really important because I'm hopeful that as I work with the ESG professionals at Wells Fargo, that some of this discipline can also move into the world of ESG. And I say this because if, if this doesn't happen, then people have a lot of air cover. To, you know, they have air cover to present the results the way they want, and everyone has a slightly different view. It makes comparability really difficult. Um, and really for us to make some of the progress, um, bringing this discipline in, making sure we close the data gaps is going to be critical. Amy Lures, Global Lead of Sustainability Science at Microsoft, had plenty of thoughts about how carbon accounting frameworks should be improved. Right now, methods of gathering and reporting emissions data are inconsistent, confusing, and not reliable. That's something that Microsoft, ClimateWorks Foundation, and about 20 other companies are trying to address with a new initiative called Carbon Call. Carbon accounting, which is the foundation of carbon accountability, is unreliable and siloed. And so last week, we joined the Climate Works Foundation and about 20 other organizations to launch the Carbon Call, which is focused on addressing these two challenges. So let me tell you uh, exactly what we're doing in that space. One is we're mobilizing companies to commit to reporting on greenhouse gas emissions, as well as removals, in an annual way, comprehensively and transparently. And I hope every company in this room signs up for that commitment. But the other piece we're working on is mobilizing resources and actions to develop a reliable and interoperable carbon accounting from product to planet. And let me unpack this, this second piece a little bit and focus on these two words, reliability and interoperability. I think these two words have to be the pillars of our carbon accountability and our carbon accounting work moving forward. By reliability, I mean accessibility, accuracy, and consistency of the data that underpins our greenhouse gas and, uh, counting systems. The ultimate source of truth for our carbon counting is the planet. It's the atmosphere. It's our planetary carbon accounting system, which, whether we like it or not, tracks how humanity is spending down our um, remaining carbon budget. And what do I mean by that? The amount of carbon that we, greenhouse gases we can emit to the atmosphere before crossing catastrophic climate thresholds. Traditionally, it's been really difficult to connect that planetary truth to what we put in our books, in our, in our carbon accounting, in our companies. But that's changing. New data streams, scientific advances in scientific understanding, AI, cloud computing, is allowing us to connect those dots in ways that we couldn't before. It's not there today, but it, we need to accelerate where that's coming, and in a few years, we can get there. 
we need, to, we need to make that happen. Let me turn to interop interoperability. What I mean by interoperability is the ability to exchange information between companies with corporations and all the way up to the scientific community that's actually doing this planetary accounting for, for the, the planet. The greenhouse gas inventory infrastructure that was established over 20 years ago was not set up to address the carbon accounting challenges that we have today. We need, the carbon accounting challenges we have today, we need to be able to track carbon through products, among companies, across borders, in and out of nature. The carbon accounting structure we're building today is what we need to rely on for us to collectively manage how we are spending the remaining carbon budget, how we are using the limited um, carbon removal capacity that the planet has given us. Our final clip is from Ellis Jones, Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer for Goodyear. He offers more perspective on how these changes in accounting and reporting can help companies embed sustainability into their business. In the middle, you'll hear an exchange with Joel, who moderated this discussion. When you talk about consistency, reliability of data, I mean, I think we're all challenged with that. You know, think about, you know, your scope three missions and, and trying to calculate and the questions around scope three missions. So, so if we're going to be, you know, we, we talked yesterday in my session about, you know, some people still feel, you know, we're outside the business, but we are the business. We are in the business, we are part of the business, and we're integrated with the business. And the more consistent data, the more reliable data, the more auditable, auditable the data, the more our leaders feel that this is part of our business. Um, so that's what I hope it brings to it. It brings that, you know, we are part of the business. We are driving and helping drive the business. And the more consistent reliability your data is, I think the more your leaders feel, okay, this is what we do as a business, and it's not outside of what I do in my business. So I'm trying to discern from that how much of this is internal, in, internal change versus external change of reputation or mm -hmm. influence. I, I think there's a part of both. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when, look, there's, just be honest, we're starting to tie incentives to, to our progress. So there's a lot of things that occur that want inside the business and then you need to be able to, um, to audit and assure outside the business as you, as you go forward. I also think the learning that can come from it. Um, you know, the more consistent we get, the more I can see what Microsoft is doing or see what my competitors are doing, and we're all measuring on the same playing field. And if they are doing better to me, I want to know how they're doing better to me, and I want to catch up to them. So I, I look at this as a just positive, both internally and externally, to be able to, to, to reach the goal collectively as, as a society. writing about systems change lately, and it came up again last week at GreenBiz 22. While he was there, Joel sat down with Sally Uren, CEO of Forum for the Future, to talk about what systems change means and how we'll actually do it. So Sally, you've been speaking a lot about system change and what does it mean and how do we do it? And I'm wondering how you view uh, this moment in terms of the kinds of changes and how we need to to move further faster. Thanks, Joel. Um, yes, I have been talking about system change for a while because I think that it is the route to drive the deep transformation that we know is needed to tackle 
the root causes of our climate breakdown, structural inequality. And I think we're at a really incredible moment in time. Everything around us is shifting. The food system is on the move towards regenerative. The energy system is in transition. We're seeing a massive switch to renewables. The health system is is in transition. The economy is in transition. Think about the rise of nature-based solutions, alternative investment vehicles. So it's a moment in time full of incredible opportunity and potential, but also fraught with risk, I think, in that whilst these transitions are underway, they're beginning to happen, there's a danger that we don't approach them with that robust systems lens and ensure that we do redesign our systems, you know, reconfigure them, repattern them, shift the goals of the system so that if it's the economy system, the goal has broadened out to include prosperity for people and the planet, not just economic prosperity. So I spend half my time thinking, we're going to do it. We are going to rewire these systems and we'll see systemic change manifest itself in the world around us. And then I spend half my time really worried that what we might see is a shallow transition and we end up with a slightly better version of what we have today. Yeah, that's, uh, as I was talking about earlier at at this event, the duality of the world we live in, that it's a a glass half full, glass half empty and and all that. Uh, Do you think people understand what systems change even means or what we talk about when we talk about a systems? Because I think a lot of people, they say, well, it's a value chain or it's the systems within my company or the system that we use to make this product or whatever it is. How do we make sure that we all know what we're talking about when we talk about systems? Yeah, great question. And a system is many things. It can be a social structure, such as education. It could be an ecosystem, such as a marine ecosystem. It can be an organization because the world is full of nested systems. And I think what we really need to be clear about is when we talk about systems, there are a multiplicity of them, they are all nested. But when we're talking about systemic change, we're talking of a new way of operating. We're talking of a system, be it an organization, the global economy, the food system, operating to a different set of goals. Because a system does what a system does. Um, we always hear phrases, the health system is broken, the food system is broken, the economy is broken. They're not broken. They're working really well to the current goals of those systems. And so when we're talking about systemic change, we have to reimagine the goal of a system and then start to create interventions to start to think about policy shifts, financial flow shifts, mindset shift to ensure that that system reconfigures around a new set of goals. So it's not easy. It's really messy and complicated. But the first step is exactly that really understand our world as a set of interconnected systems, accept that things are messy, complicated, you make an intervention in one area, it will have untold consequences that you can't even see. But as soon as we sort of lean into the systemic nature of our world, the sooner we understand how to affect that change. And in the end, it's a game of imagination. Let's reimagine the food system. And as I said earlier, when we think about regenerative agriculture, that's happening. Let's reimagine the energy system. Let's reimagine capitalism so that it works for sustainable development. This is all possible and we have to do it now. So that's the systems part of systems change. And that brings up the other half, which is 
change. Um, I've long maintained that when it comes to change, people love the noun and hate the verb. In other words, we like the idea of change, but actually changing, not so easy uh, or, or desirable in many cases. So, so how do we think about that? Um, and, you know, people, I think, ask, you know, how much change do I need? And, you know, how much change can I get away with? Because people understand the system may be, quote unquote, broken, um, uh, but they don't necessarily want to be the one to have to, to bend to make it right. Yeah, um, having spent years and years in sustainability, I'm familiar with that conundrum. Um, I've created many visions of sustainable XYZ corporation or sustainable sector and then have sat there puzzled thinking, why is nothing really happening? Because actually at an individual level, there was a real reluctance to embrace that change. And what I've observed is that one of the big unlocks is individually, if you can imagine yourself as part of a different and better future, that can often be a huge motivation for doing something differently. So when we talk about change, there's an assumption that I'm going to have to give something up. Someone's going to lose. I don't think that's true. I think we can be better at embracing an abundance mindset and actually recognize that there's potential everywhere. So we've just been doing a lot of work on just and regenerative. I've used that word three times now. It's very close to my heart. But we've done quite a lot of um, thinking about what is this just and regenerative mindset? Because from the work of Donello Meadows, we know that mindset shift is the ultimate lever for change. And we often forget about that. And so we've tried to sort of set out what we mean by just and regenerative mindset, which is really saying, recognize potential, not problems, recognize it's how you do something as well as the end destination and embrace complexity, embrace lived experience. And for me, and we haven't written this, don't be so hard on yourself. Um, you know, perfection can be the enemy of change as well. But what I've really discovered is that if we can take people to different futures and help people locate themselves in the future that they want, then the willingness to create the change to get to that future is often really unlocked. And then coupled with a different mindset of potential, of possibility, you start to see change happen. So in a way, I suppose we kind of need to give change a bit of a makeover and move our sort of understanding of changes. It's difficult, it's complex. I might lose something too. It can be an amazing thing. And actually we can create what we want and we need to do it now. And well, as a professional storyteller, uh, and as you are too, I think, uh, you know, part of this is what's the story we not just want to tell now, but what's the story we get to tell if we get things right? And and, and I think there's a, a huge opening there for, for the stories to envision exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, and I think the clue is in the title of our organization, Forum for the Future. We started on the premise that if we can create positive visions of the future that we want for an organization, for a system, for a global commodity, then we can start to track in that direction. The future, I say this a lot, but it's really true. It doesn't just happen to us. Um, William Gibson wrote a while ago, the future is already here. It's all around us. It's not evenly distributed. So there are flashes of our future here. So all the noise around regenerative, all the incredible activity in that space, it's kind of already here. So how do we spot it and bring it into today? And 
Therefore, imagining the future that we want and creating that future is entirely possible because it's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, one last question. Um, if I'm a sustainability professional in a, a larger, midsize or any kind of company, what's the one thing you want me to no- take away from this in terms of how I might think about my job, my role, uh, what needs to, uh, uh, what I need to be doing in the relatively short term? I think the one thing we all could do is ask ourselves, what mindset are we applying to the challenges that we're trying to solve for? So back to a recent publication, the Business Transformation Compass, we articulated four nested mindsets from doing no harm, doing good, doing more, so being net positive, to just and regenerative. And just trying to figure out where are you in that spectrum, you know, where is your mindset and how might you shift towards just and regenerative? Even if you're at the start of your sustainability journey, if you have a inclination to embrace this just and regenerative mindset, you'll start to go further and start to go faster because you're seeing potential, you're seeing possibility. So just take a moment to think about where are you and where, where's, your, where's your mind at? What are the stories you're telling yourself? And what might happen if you shift your mindset towards this notion of just and regenerative where we have reconfigured our systems because the way we tackle these challenges ultimately will determine whether we get to where we want to be and the stories we tell ourselves our values our beliefs we don't pay enough attention to those sometimes and they are incredibly powerful levers for change so everybody has power everybody has agency shifting your mindset to possibilities often is an amazing unlock. Sally, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joel. If you think the U.S. recycling system is challenged, consider this data point. The country of Israel only recycles or composts about 20% of its waste. That reality was inspiration for Israeli startup UBQ Materials, founded in 2012. Its mission is the subject of a Q&A up this week on greenbiz.com. Here to offer more insights is the author of that article, GreenBiz senior writer, CJ Klaus. Hey, CJ, how are you? I'm really good, Heather. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us on GreenBiz 350. Thanks for having me on. So what makes UBQ intriguing? Tell me about its mission. So as you know, I spoke with one of their co-founders, Jack Biggio, and he told me all about the company's process. Basically what they do is they convert household garbage into an alternative plastic material, a thermoplastic that can be used to make basically anything you can make with conventional fossil fuel based plastic. And the company has a pilot plant a couple of hours south of Tel Aviv, and they divert municipal household waste, all the just basic trash headed for landfills, and convert about 7,000 tons of the stuff each year. And the thing that really made me sit up and take notice of this company is that people don't have to sort their garbage. Yeah, we know that that sorting and collect the, and the whole collection thing is like, like the big thing. That's a big uh kind of a blocker to expanding recycling efforts. So 
How does UBQ get around that? How are they helping? Yeah, it's a huge problem. It's really confusing and people often either don't do it right or don't do it at all. So they take all of your trash. You don't have to do anything. And once it gets to their plant, they first sort out all of the metals and glass because those are valuable and highly recyclable and they send those over to recycling partners. And then they take everything else that's in there, all of the plastic, paper, food scraps, all of the stuff, dirty diapers even, and they use a chemical process that breaks it all down to a basic particle level. And they upcycle it, turning it into little thermoplastic pellets that basically look the same as the pellets sold by the petrochemical industry. So they're not recycling, they're kind of converting the material into something else. Hmm. Right, right. As Jack explained, recycling is turning plastic into plastic, paper into paper, etc. And what they do is convert it into a different type of material. Got it. So then they're selling these pellets to manufacturers? Right. They have got customers that make car interiors, packaging, outdoor furniture, hangers, sort of poetically recycling bins. And yeah, (laughs) there you go. How's that for circular? And they just announced a new small pilot project with Pepsi, which will be using UBQ to make about 830 of the pallets, the beverage pallets that they use to store and distribute their products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know the thing that caught my eye when, when we were talking about this, this story is the, uh, the investments that they've raised, um, $170 million in a funding round led by TPG Rise. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that money and um, they're planning an expansion with it? Like what, what are they doing with those funds? Yeah, they just raised this money, their latest round, $170 million, and there were other investors involved, but the bulk of it came from TPG Rise. And they are planning a big expansion. So they've already got a plant that is in the works. And we talked about that and also their experience raising capital and how that's changed in recent years. And we talked about Jack's outlook on the circular economy. And so I have an excerpt from our conversation where he explains all of that. So let's go to that. The first facility is being built in the Netherlands, in the south of the Netherlands. We are very well advanced in the process and uh, expect to start operations in that plant in late 2022. And in parallel, uh, while we uh, develop that facility and equip it and, and commission it, we are moving forward with the development of, of new uh, sites in other places in Europe, in the United States. Oh, so you're coming to the United States? Of course, we will come to the United States. It's one of the one of the central places for the development of the company. Uh, we we expect also to be in uh, Canada, Japan, uh, Australia, Asian countries. We would like very much to use local ways to create local U- UBQ to support the local industry uh, with their own waste. We have a lot of trash here, so this is a good place for you to come. (laughs) Yeah, you know, the very, very sad thing is that there is a lot of trash everywhere. Humanity is producing 2 billion tons of household waste. 
only household waste, 2 billion tons. Imagine 10 million jumbo jet, one next to the other full of passengers. That's the weight of the waste, of the household waste that is produced every year in the world. By the way, something which is very important, we strongly uh, support any recycling effort. We believe that recycling is an excellent solution. There is so much waste that we need many, many alternative solutions. DB2 does not disrupt recycling because after people took the cardboard to recycle or the paper to recycle or that plastic to recycle, there will always be dirty paper, carbon and plastic embedded in the waste, uh, what we call residual waste that would end up in landfill. That would be our raw material. So we're not interfering with, with, with recycling. Recyclers can still pick whatever valuables they find. And that leftover that would be taken to the, to the landfill, uh, which is also costly, uh, will come to UBQ to be turned into, into, you know, into UBQ material, therefore closing the loop on, on a circular economy. For us, waste is a natural resource. We do hope that many other companies will start seeing it as a natural resource. We will change the name of waste into something useful and it will be more painful for people to dispose of it. Yeah, it's a way we, the way we look at it, kind of the state of mind around it. Yeah, hard to believe that these are all materials, products that you use and the minute they go into the bin, it turns into trash. And five seconds ago, it was not trash. It was something valuable, something that you paid for, something that cost the planet a lot of energy, resources, transportation, logistics, you name it. And, and all of a sudden, it turns into trash. But regrettably, this comes from very long ago. So we cannot blame any one of us. We just can blame the way we created this linear economy. And, and turning that linear economy into a circular system is not an easy process. It involves the commitment of, of all these uh, stakeholders that we live together in, uh, in the world to make it uh, happen. So tell me about hearing funding. It's always a challenge. It's always one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs face when, when they start a business. What has that experience been like for you? Were there any issues, any challenges that were specific to the type of company that you were trying to start? Yeah, the world today in the last year or two has massively shifted it's consciousness of the importance to develop alternative material, renewable energies, renewable technologies, sustainable platforms. The financial world is shifting into that direction massively. And now you see uh, venture capital funds and equity funds that were typically, uh, you know, very involved in digital economy, artificial intelligence, software platforms, internet understanding that, that there is a big opportunity in the sustainable world, in the alternative material sector. So you're seeing a lot of funding coming to the, into this direction. So, so that shift is happening, which means that there is capital there. There is more and more capital there looking after uh, alternative technologies or alternative materials. Remember also, as we were saying, that governments and institutions and NGOs are pushing strongly that, that agenda and creating also an environment where these products will be better received and will will get more incentives uh, and more qualifications and certifications. So all that is creating an, a very attractive opportunity for entrepreneurs to come into this arena and develop, hopefully, uh, new materials, new processes, new additives, new technologies that address uh, all these important problems. The environment has, has really changed in the positive uh, side. 
10 years ago when we established UBQ, it was truly different, okay? But there was still an appetite for it. It was difficult. Today, in my opinion, there's ample room for, for entrepreneurs to enter uh, this arena. And I have to tell you something, which is making a good business, okay, with uh, balanced by a good idea and a good product that is good for the environment, is good for humanity and the future of our generations, is such a rewarding thing that once you get to that place, you cannot find something that is more interesting than doing that. So uh, it's, it's doing business with heart. So there is a change and, and definitely there is ample room for new uh, entrepreneurs, new technologies, and we need them urgently. We need them desperately because as you all know, time is running up. Do you think that it's also gotten easier as far as early stage venture capital goes? Because what I've heard from some entrepreneurs that work in circularity and green technology is that a lot of investors call themselves green investors or sustainable investment funds, but they still want the five-year exit. And if you're working on something that is novel... Uh, that isn't always the type of funding that you need. You need more patient capital. Do you think that there's more patient capital out there now? I, I can assure you there is. You're absolutely right. These type of uh, projects uh, take time. Okay, This is not a, a software uh, being run from, from a small office anywhere in the world and you know passing on a, digi a digital uh, algorithm to another place in a second. These are machines. These are processes. This is the real world. And in the real world, things take a little more time. I can assure you that uh, from the last rounds that we did in UBQ, especially this last round, the time horizon of companies have, uh, have expanded because of the returns are extremely attractive. You know, nothing goes, uh, it's not that people are more patient only, it's because there is a reward at the end of that, of that uh, tunnel. So... Timelines have expanded. There is more patient capital, definitely, than you see before. I am sure that it will continue moving in that direction. You see a lot of the institutional money, pension funds, etc., trying to find their way to sustainable or impact projects, and, and they do have long-term horizons. So there is, there is plenty of money there looking for the type of horizons that the entrepreneurs should be looking. And as the, as the time goes by, you are seeing more and more capital, patient capital around. Well, that's good news. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just have one more question. I wanted to ask you about your waste pet peeve because it's horrible to see so much waste in general, but there are some things that are particularly egregious. If you could snap your fingers and make one ubiquitous but really unnecessary item that gets thrown in the trash pretty much immediately, just make it go away, what would it be? Everything that is fast consumption is a problem because you are turning around the natural resources and ending their life without really taking out the real value that these things have. So uh, anything that has to do with fast consumption, fast fashion, these things are, are, are really problematic. You know, a pipe in a building will last for 30, 40 years. A plastic pipe is, a, is an incredible thing. Parts for cars or airplanes or satellites, all these things, you know, they, 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 they need to last. They need to be light. They need to be moldable. They need to resist 
extremely good. Plastic is an amazing material. You look at your contact lenses. I mean, these are made out of plastic, your telephone, your computer. All the modern economy wouldn't exist without plastics, okay? But the minute that these materials are deployed uh, so fast into places where you cannot take them back or form them in, into end products that cannot be reversed into where they were before, that is where the problem is. So there is an enormous array of, of materials, which are not only plastic, that qualify textiles, you know, fast fashion is, is the second or the third most pollutant uh, activity in the world, more than landfills. If you ask me about household waste, you know, there, there's so much in the waste that, uh, you know, pick anything you want. I just can tell you that it's very important that we're all in this. I told you this before, from consumers to governments, to NGOs, to companies, to investors, we all are part of this ugly issue which is called the linear economy, that is not only depleting natural resources, but is creating enormous amount of greenhouse gases and, and destroying the future of, of humanity. So uh, we, you know, the problem is much bigger than pointing out at one thing. The one thing is that we need to change the whole thing uh, right away and as soon as possible, because otherwise, uh, you know, all these commitments, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years are void. So one thing I wanted to add is that I did ask him whether they have any concrete plans in the U.S., and he said that he couldn't talk about it yet, but he will let us know when they have some news on that front. Great. So I'm going to just remind everyone, our listeners, that uh, if you would like to hear more about this, you should go read the story, uh, the Q&A. Uh, on greenbiz.com. And also CJ's got a lot of other uh, entrepreneurial profiles in store. And next up, we have Jennifer Holmgren, the CEO of Lanzatech. So stay tuned for, uh, for that, and as well as more commentary from CJ here on Greenbiz 350. CJ, thanks for joining us here. Thank you, Heather. See you later. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 for our weekly episode rundowns. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to Deanna Anderson for stepping in to co-host. I'll be back next week with Joel McCower. Until next week and next time, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by AutoGrid, the number one platform to manage all your distributed energy resources. Learn more at auto-grid.com. That's A-U-T-O-G-R-I-D dot com.